0: can read the uh, verses that we're going to to make our study uh, this morning. Again, from verse 8 of Romans 13, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. Whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbour, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of the light. Let us behave decently and as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual liberality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Some of these people think that Christianity uh, is to do with law, ab- being law abiding and respectable. And if all we had uh, that told us what a Christian was like was Romans 13, 1-7, we might be tempted to think that paying our taxes, keeping the laws of the land, uh, playing a part as a good citizen was what it meant to live as a Christian. And usually, people who aren't Christians combine this idea of respectability uh, with perhaps the idea of doing good. To others, Or at least not doing harm to others. Someone who keeps on the right side of the law and doesn't do anybody harm. He or she is a good Christian, folks say. And that kind of attitude leads many people to, to think that you can try uh, to be a Christian. And I've heard plenty of folks say, and maybe, maybe you've said this yourself. Uh, I know I've got my failings but I try hard, try to uh, do my best and I hope that God will accept me. But being a Christian is not about doing your best no matter how sincerely that is. Being a better person in, in Christian speak is what we call sanctification. Right? Becoming more like Jesus. But Before we get to that point, there's something much more basic uh, than that is what we call being justified, being made right with God. And you need to be made right with God before you can be made like God. And to be made right with God, you receive God's grace as a gift. That gives you a right standing before God and brings the Holy Spirit into your life and if you try instead just try to be a good Christian do your best try and keep uh, the moral law you'll end up being a rather mean kind of legalist uh, who will uh, either be filled with pride because you think you've done enough or filled with insecurity because you can never be sure that you have and one of the great discoveries that we make is that uh, we are first of all to be made right with God before we can be made like God, and that brings us back to the beginning of chapter 12, which is, if you like, the heading. Uh, it's the the great motto over the door that leads to the ending of this great letter, uh, chapters 12 to 16 in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. So the living sacrifice idea is the response, but the reason that we are going to live as chapters 12 to 16 tells us to live is because uh, of God's mercies. We have received God's mercies and therefore this is how we live. And one of the, the really important things that we have to get settled in our minds is that, To be a Christian is to obey because we are accepted. The legalist, the person who's not a Christian, the person who's relying on religion, and and I use that word in in the kind of uh, sense of civil religion, you know, keeping your nose clean, being as good as you can be, keeping the law, keeping the right side of the law. That person thinks that uh, I I obey, and therefore I'm accepted. And that can never be, because we can never be good enough. But praise God, we can be accepted because of Jesus, and if we're accepted because of Jesus, we want to obey. I am accepted, therefore I obey. And there's a world of a difference between the two. No longer do I think that I must obey to be accepted. Now, because I'm accepted, I gladly obey. In view of God's mercies, I will offer my life as a living sacrifice on God's altar. So, here is the deal. If you have responded to Romans 1-11, to you're ready to put Romans 12-16 to into practice. If you've come to realise that you are uh, no different from the rest of humanity in sin, that you have fallen short of the glory of God... And that the only remedy for that is to rest upon Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. If you know that you are made right with God, not because of your works, but because of Christ. If you now have the Holy Spirit in you, you are then able to fulfill the law of God in gratitude. As an adopted child, loved with an everlasting love that is never going to let you go. Nothing in heaven or hell can ever separate you from God's love. There is a new stability in your life. You know, we're told all the time by society in all kinds of subtle ways that we need to be more attractive, wealthier, more popular and more successful if we're going to be really loved. We're being bombarded by those messages uh, all the time. But we know as Christians, God has loved us enough already to send his son to die on the cross for us. We don't need to be more anything to be loved by God. Because God is so generous in giving his abundant love, we are to give generously to others in love. And that gospel thinking uh, is the crucial foundation behind all that Paul is saying in these verses. These are verses for people who have been to the cross, people who have known their sins forgiven, who now have peace with God. Paul's saying, now, this is how you to live. And we see, first of all, in these verses, the, the power Uh, of love, the the propulsion that comes from the discovery of God's love for us. The previous passage, verses 1 to 7, dealt with our obligations to society as a whole. Uh, Taxes, tributes, uh, the way that we submit to authority uh, for the Christian, uh, giving them gladly flows (coughs) from our gratitude to God, a gratitude that longs to please God in every sphere, not just in church, but when we're filling in our tax returns. And Paul's linking piece in verse 8 summarises the section saying, Owe no man anything, or let no debt remain outstanding. One branch of the Methodist church um, asks uh, prospective ordinance for the ministry, uh, the question, do you have outstanding debts which would embarrass your future ministry? It's a very practical and very pointed question. Now, the scripture is not telling us, if we take the scripture as a whole, uh, it's not telling us that we're never to take on a mortgage or a car loan, but it is warning us against that cavalier attitude that's so prevalent today where we take on debts until we're overwhelmed with them and maybe take on debts with no intention of paying them off. Professor Murray writes, few things bring greater reproach on a Christian than the accumulation of debts and refusal to pay them. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt, to love one another. Now that's usually been interpreted meaning an exception to the previous command not to have debts, meaning that to love our neighbour is a debt that can never be discharged. But again, Murray points out that the word translated uh, "except" doesn't necessarily indicate an exception to what's gone before, but can mean an additional thought, And that would mean the idea, let no debt remain outstanding, only do love one another. And that fits better with the context of all that Paul has been saying. Uh, Love is not a way for us to uh, whittle away at a debt that nevertheless always remains. Love is not a way of seeking to be square and even with God for his love, even although we know that we will not completely obliterate the debt. That would be a shallow way of understanding what Paul's saying. The motive isn't that we have a burden of debt. The motive for obedience uh, is what uh, that great founding father of the free church, Thomas Chalmers, described as the expulsive power of a new affection. great term, isn't it? What he meant is that when you're saved, when you become a Christian, there is a new uh, a new dynamo within your life. Uh, There's a new uh, engine that fires the Christian life, and that is the engine of gratitude to God. So instead of multiplying man-made rules like the Pharisees did, the law of love drives our desire to keep the commandments. The best way to drive out an impure affection is to import a pure one. The best way to live to please God is to want God, to desire God. So we do what he asks for the simple reason that it brings us more of God. The religious, remember using that in the kind of uh, negative sense, the religious person obeys God to get things from God, whether that's feeling better or getting healing or wealth, Or power. You know, I I serve God because it's a trade. I get something back. The gospel man or woman obeys God to get God himself to delight in and that he might resemble his God more. So this is the background, the unspoken background to all that is said here. Jesus identified the greatest commandment in another situation to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and to love your neighbour as yourself. And that first part, to love God with all your heart, is assumed here, whilst the second part is, is spoken. So the power of love, and then there's a new way Paul speaks of of us to think of the commandments. This love for God that a Christian has is is made real, takes on workaday clothes in our love for others. Now we speak of the the, the first and the second table of the commandments. So there actually were two tablets of stone in which the commandments were written. And the first four relate to God, how we're to uh, honour God and then that the next six relate to our relation to other people, to our families, to those around us. And the focus in these verses was on that second table, Commandments 5 to 10. And Jesus says they can be summarised by love your neighbour as you love yourself. Now you may have come across uh, a kind of turning things on its head uh, way of looking at this verse... Uh, where people have said, ah, you know, you can't love others without loving yourself. And therefore, the most important thing is to learn to love yourself. And there's a, a very strong uh, movement in kind of pop psychology circles where this is the key thing and we're all suffering from uh, low self-esteem and we need to love ourselves more and more and uh, that's not what's meant here at all the Bible always assumes that we love ourselves it's a natural instinct, doesn't need to be learned doesn't need to be reinforced when Paul is developing a theology of marriage uh, he writes, for after all no one ever hated his own body but he feeds and cares for it so it's self evident that we look after our own interests Well, Jesus says that should be the measure of how we love others. Have the interests of others uppermost in your thinking as your own interests naturally are uppermost in your thinking. So that gives a new incentive to be godly and to relate to others based on love. So, a Christian doesn't keep from adultery, for example, because he's afraid of getting caught. A Christian refrains from adultery because he loves that other person too much. When two persons allow their physical passions to sweep them away, the reason isn't that they love each other too much, but that they love each other too little. In real love, there's respect and there's restraint that saves a person from sin. The motive of love shows that the false reasoning that leads people uh, to break uh, the commandment. For example, uh, uh, John argues that his love for Linda has grown cold. And on the other hand, he feels real love for Dorothy. So therefore surely he argues God would not want me to remain in a cold lifeless relationship when there is this opportunity of realizing true love with Dorothy. Now, that's the kind of reasoning that people get into, you know, when when their hormones overrule their brain. Uh, and love instead insists that he is to be true to Linda and that he's to show true respect and affection for Dorothy by refusing to indulge his misdirected feelings. And so love is actually the way of fulfilling uh, the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. It also uh, is a way that ensures we never kill or injure because love never seeks to destroy but always to build up. Love can never hate because love is kind. Love will not steal because love is always more concerned with giving than with getting. Uh, He'll not covet because covetousness is a wrongly directed desire for something that should not be desired. And love cleanses the heart until that desire is gone. Love will not allow the Christian to tell lies about somebody else. Because love always seeks the good of the other. And so love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. The law is like a vessel that is to be filled up from the bottom to the top with love. It's not as though there's something other than than love that starts off keeping the commandments. You know, you start keeping the commandments with a dogged determination uh, to be able to tick them off one by one no, from the beginning to the end uh, love is what uh, fills up the law and so when a telesales person phones at tea time and you are exasperated as uh, truth to tell we often are then love will dictate the way we respond when someone who's done you a bad turn in the past has mentioned in conversation love will shape the way you speak of him or her When you're working on your own for your employer, love will mean that you do a full day's work rather than be idle. Love is the filling up of the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Isn't it wonderful the way the scriptures uh, don't cast aside the commandments but bring this uh, dimension uh, into the keeping of the commandments, show us this new dynamic uh, which uh, the, the saved person now has, uh, a new love uh, for God and for others that becomes the, the engine of spiritual change. And then at the end of, of the section, Paul uh, runs off by saying, these are important things to do. But you know, brothers and sisters, it is more important than ever to seek love Because of the times in which we live. Now, according to the New Testament, we are living in the last times. You get lots of uh, preachers who are are big on what we call eschatology, you know, trying to discern things that are going on in Israel or Russia or Iraq or whatever, the EU, and saying, oh, Uh, We're soon going to be in the last times. We've been in the last times uh, since Jesus' ascension. The scripture uh, sees the storyline of redemption as having one more event of eternal significance, and that is the return of Jesus. From his resurrection and ascension, the next great event to take place is his return. We are living in the last days there 's no time therefore for being slack in Christian things if you 're in work that uh, tends to bring on, on your head uh, the attention of inspectors of different kinds, auditors, then if you know that an inspector is coming over, you get to get your books audited then uh, there 's a new Urgency, not to say alarm about things. You are meticulous in having uh, your, your books kept up to date and so on. But it, if the inspectors gave no indication as to when they might come, what then? A gardener for a large estate in northern Italy was conducting a visitor through the castle and the beautiful, well-groomed grounds of the castle. And as the visitor had lunched with the gardener and his wife, he commended them for the beautiful way they were keeping the gardens. And he asked, uh, when was the last time, by the way, when the owner came uh, to see uh, these beautiful gardens that uh, you are caring uh, for on his behalf? Well, he said it was about 10 years ago. The visitor was... Very surprised, says, "Well, why do you keep the guards in such an immaculate, lovely manner?" He said, "Because I'm expecting him to return." Uh, The visitor persisted, "Is he coming next week?" The gardener replied, "I don't know when he's coming, but I am expecting him today." Though he had no uh, indication of when the owner would return, he was living in the light of the imminent arrival of the owner. And wanted the garden for which he was responsible to be in its best condition. He wasn't hanging over the gate, uh, watching down the road to see whether his master was coming. He was in the garden. He was trimming, pruning, mowing, weeding, planting. He was busy. And that's what Paul is talking about here when he says the night is almost over. The day is nearly here. We need to wake up, watch, work and witness for our Lord. I wonder if uh, there is a word for uh, any of us who perhaps we grow slack and we lose sight of that that biblical uh, word that we are to live in the light of the return of Christ. Uh, there's a question which really brings that into full uh, uh, relief, what is our schedule like in the coming week? Think of the things that we 're planning doing. Some of us will have a busy week ahead of us, For others maybe less uh, taxing. But what if we knew what if we were given that information which no one has of course that Jesus was returning before the end of the week? Would you have to make some radical changes to the things that you are planning doing in the week? Are there things that you would add to your schedule, things that you would withdraw from your schedule that you were planning doing? Are you living in the light of Christ's return? Paul pictures the person who is tumbled to the fact that Christ is returning soon, as emerging from darkness into the light. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. When your Christian life lacks urgency, you begin to uh, grow careless of the sins that accumulate in your life. You, you, look, up, you look at sin with complacency. It's a, a little bit like getting dressed up and uh, looking in the mirror in the house before you leave the house. You to see if you're looking uh, nice and smart. No stains on the jacket. But when you go out of the house and go into the daylight as opposed to the artificial light in the house, the daylight may show you up in a very different way. All of a sudden, uh, you're aware of that mud stain on your trousers that you were oblivious to in the artificial light of the house. And now it looks terrible in the daylight. We're to live in the light of God. And the call to holiness is expressed negatively and positively. Negatively, uh, it involves putting away sin. Paul lists six individual sins, orgies, uh, more literally revelry, the kind of noisy carousing in packs and streets at night uh, that annoys uh, the, 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 uh, the people trying to get rest and degrades those who are involved. Drunkenness, uh, a vice again which, which robs men and women of their dignity as they go around and behave as fools. Charity, uh, chastity rather, uh, in Uh, The Roman world was uh, virtually unknown and was hardly recognised as a virtue. But in the light of God summons men and women to faithfulness. Shamelessness, debauchery describes the activity of someone who's lost to shame, who no longer cares that people see what he does. Someone for whom reputation and honour mean nothing. Dissension is the strife that's created by someone who's constantly vying for power. Someone who'll never accept second place. It's the opposite of agape love. Jealousy uh, means the grudging envy of anyone who is better than me in either their achievements or their goodness. Now we can live in a world where these things are absent and we can long to see them in our own lives. We can long to be better people, but we can be unwilling to make the commitment to Christ that will bring the expulsive power of that new affection into our lives. Just like a man attracted to a woman uh, he loves, but unwilling to break with the other loves of his life. Uh, many persons have been drawn to Christ, drawn to Christ's purity, drawn to uh, to Christ's loveliness, but unwilling to make that commitment to Christ. This was actually the case with one of the the great heroes of the the Christian Church, Augustine. These verses at the close of our our section were key in Augustine's conversion. Augustine tells in his confessions how he wandered Europe uh, trying to get on uh, in the academic world but also pursuing to the full uh, immorality. And Everywhere Augustine went the prayers of his faithful believing mother Monica followed him. And one day, uh, he was walking in a garden, distressed because of his moral failure, his attempts to live a good life, which always fell flat on their face. And he kept on exclaiming to himself, how long? How long tomorrow and tomorrow? Why not now? Why not this hour? And an end to my depravity. And he's walking up and down and he's thinking like this and he's verbalising his, his, uh, his desire and, and yet there's something pulling him in the other direction. And he's weeping when he hears a voice saying, Take and read. Take and read. Tole Leggy," And it sounded like a child's voice. And as he heard that, he, he racked his memory to, to, to think if he could remember a child's rhyme or song that had these strange words in them he could think of none he hurried back to the seat where his friend Olypius was sitting and there was a bible open he said I snatched it up and read silently the first passage my eyes fell upon let us behave decently as in the daytime not in orgies and drunkenness not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. He went on, I neither wished nor needed to read further. With the end of that sentence, as though the light of assurance had poured into my head, all the shades of doubt were scattered. I put my finger in the page and closed the book. I turned to Olympia's, with a calm countenance and told him augustine's conversion was not a desire to try to be better it was a surrender to jesus knowing all that would result from that surrender you don't obtain acceptance by obeying god you obey god because you're accepted So recognising that the time is short, Paul says, "Had you not better live in the light? Clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, identify with him in his death and resurrection. Jesus is all, he is the complete negation of all these smutty, horrible vices that are mentioned in verse 13. And we're to put on Christ. We're to consider ourselves dead to sin, alive to righteousness. And we are not to give sin an itch. The story about uh, three drivers who are being interviewed for uh, the post of, of of a driver for a wealthy man and the 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 routine driving involved traversing uh, mountainous tracks. The first one said, uh, to commend himself, I'm such a good driver, I can come within one foot of the edge without losing control. And the second one, uh, trying to outdo him, said, Oh, well, I can come within six inches of the edge and not lose control. The man doing the hiring looked at the third man, asked him how good a driver he was. He replied, well, I'm a good enough driver to know not to try to drive close to the edge at all. I stay as far away from the danger as possible. Some Christians like to drive close to the edge. Some Christians like to think that they can give a little here and give a little there in order to fit in with the culture around. And the warning in our passages that give sin an inch and it'll take a mile. And we need to be realist in our regard to our weaknesses and the power, on the other hand, of temptation. And we're to use this great fact that Jesus is coming again to motivate us, along with a heart of gratitude, to love and to live with the urgency of those who look For Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. May God bless to us his holy word. Let's close our service now as we